So we've been looking at this idea of fitness for the soul this year, and we're going to do this all year long, and we're going to be doing different aspects. Right now, we're in the worship Jesus part of fitness for the soul. You see, a good indicator of the fitness of the soul is how a person views God. How we think about him affects how we live our lives. You see, how we view things does affect us in certain ways. It affects how we act, what we think, and how we, what we do. Just before I came up here, my lips are awfully chapped this morning. And I didn't have any Vaseline or anything in my pocket. I leaned over to Angie and I said, do you have any chapstick? And she said, yeah, well, I don't think so. But then she found some, as my good wife always has something in that purse of hers. So she gave it to me. I put it on. Then I leaned over. I said, is it lipstick? Am I red? Is my lips red now? <laughs> And she said, no, it's purple. But if I did come up here with purple lipstick on, you would view me in a different way, wouldn't you? I don't know if I want to listen to this guy. It would affect how you think and what you would do at that point. And so the question for us today is, how do you view God? Do you have a high view of him or a low view of him? You see, if you have a low view of God... You're going to do whatever you want, how you want, any way you want, without any consideration to his claim upon your life. You're not going to acknowledge really that he's there throughout the day unless there's a crisis that you come to or a tough spot that you're in or a need for help. And then you recognize that he's there. But however, if you have a high view of God, you recognize that the Lord is your priority. He is central to your life. You begin and end your day with him. You talk with him throughout the day. You depend on him. You seek his counsel. You trust him with every part of your life. He is where your love is set. And so you desire to honor him in what you say and in what you do, as well as bring glory to him through your life and every part of your life. So how you view God affects how you live. So the question is, how do you view him? Well, we're going to look here in just a moment. Psalm 24. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles if you're not there already to Psalm 24 in your Bibles or in your Bible app. And we're going to see that David, who wrote this psalm, viewed the Lord as glorious in this psalm. As a matter of fact, we see this. He, is, he, sees, he has a glorious, grand, high view of the Lord. So friends, as we come to this moment, let us, as we look at this past scripture, let us see that Jesus is glorious. That's the title of today's message. Worship Jesus the glorious. And let's see that Jesus is glorious and may it affect everything about us. Because I'm here to tell you today, as I am every Sunday, that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy to be loved and worthy to be followed, and worthy to serve. So we're going to look at Psalm 24. And if you're able, in honor and reverence to the Word of God, if you'd please stand as I read this passage for us today. I love this passage of Scripture. I hope you love it as much as I do after we get done with the message today as well. The Bible tells us, Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 
He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him and seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that this king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, you are the king of glory. In all the heavens, you are the king of glory. And so, Lord, we bow before you and humbly adore you and worship you this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as we walk through this passage of Scripture together. together. And may you speak to every heart today. May we walk away today with a higher view of you than when we first walked in. And may that high view affect everything about us and how we act, how we speak, how we live. Lord, for your glory, honor, and praise. Lord, may you take what you've given me this week, simply multiply it and use it for your glory. But I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you picked up one of the little uh, note cards out there, the bulletin note cards, or if you see it on our app, you see that there are three points to today. And then at the end of the message, which is what uh, we typically do have uh, to-dos, what we call to-dos, these are application points that what we learn and understand from the Word of God, how to apply that to life. So there are two of those today as well. So three points and then to-dos. The first point is this, if we look at this idea, this truth that we worship Jesus, He is the glorious. The first thing we see here is that He is the rightful owner of it all. As we look at this passage of scripture, as the psalmist David writes, he says in verse one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That's pretty plain and simple, isn't it? He's the owner of it all. The earth, it tells us, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to the Lord. And not only the earth itself as a whole, but everything that fills the earth belongs to him. That means every mountain and every valley, every rock and every river, every ant and every elephant, every sea creature and every speck of sand on the seashore, every part belongs to him. The Bible also tells us that all of the world is his and everyone who dwell there. That means everything and everyone belong to him. So he has a claim on every microscopic speck to the greatest galaxy in the universe. He has a claim on every person. He has a claim on me. And he has a claim on you. Why? Because of verse 2, it tells us, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That means that he, is a claim, he has a claim on you, he has a claim on me, on everything, because he alone is the creator. He's the creator. And so because he's the creator, 
That's what we see here, how he has this claim. This the verse here, it recalls back to Genesis 1 and the act of creation where God spoke and he caused the dry land to rise from the watery surface. So everything in all of creation, listen now, everything in all of creation has the stamp of God's fingerprint upon it. And since he is the owner of it, I mean, since he's the creator of it all, he's the owner of it all. The Bible tells us in Psalm 89, verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that's in it, you have founded them. And so as the creator, he then is the rightful owner of it all. And as our creator, he owns us, but also he cares deeply for us. As humankind, as his creation, we're made in his image. And so understand today that as he's the rightful owner, y'all with me this morning? As he is the rightful owner of it all, that means that he has the right to make the rules, right? He's the owner of it all. He has the right to make the rules. And since he has the right to make the rules, he has the right then to tell me what is right and what is wrong. He has the right to tell me how to live. He has the right to tell me how to come into his presence. And he has the right to tell me who can come into his presence. And we know all of that, what he's already told us in the word of God. So someone may say, well, I hear what you're saying, pastor. And sure, he's the creator. But I mean, if they were to, if I were to ask God, God, what gives you that right to tell me how to live my life? God, what gives you that right to to tell me what the right and wrong is. God, what gives you that right? I think that God would probably answer you the way he answered Job in chapter 38 and 39. I'd love to read the whole chapters, but I'm not going to. But I'll just give you a little snippet, okay? I'll encourage you to read that on your own. But if you were to say, God, what gives you the right to tell me that I can do what I can do, what I can't do? I think God would answer you this way, starting in verse four of Job 38. The Lord would say, where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, right? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And we would have to sheepishly say, no, I've not done any of that. And I wasn't there when you laid the foundation of the earth. You know why? Because you're not the creator. He is. Amen. He is the creator of it all. That means he has authority, all authority over us. So, beloved, what's your view of God? It should be a high view. See, he is the rightful owner of it all. So we must have a high view of God because he is awesome and he is sovereign and he is God. And so who is then this creator God? Who is the owner of it all? Who is this king of glory that we see later in this chapter? Well, it's Jesus In Colossians chapter one, we see in verse 16 and 17, for by him, as this chapter is talking about Jesus, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is the creator, the rightful owner of it all, and he has a right to tell us how to live. Amen? Amen. He has a right to tell us how to live, and he has a right to tell us how and who can enter into his presence. And so since he is the creator, and and he is so wonderful, as David is saying here in verses 1 and 2, then he asks the question, and we see the second point here. There's a rightful requirement for access. He's the rightful owner of it all, but to enter into his presence, there's a rightful requirement for access. So David points us to this next question here in verse 3. He asks the question, so you're the creator, the owner of all. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can go up to him? Who can go up to the Lord? Who, who can stand in his holiness? Who can stand in his holy place? Who can come into his presence and be in his presence without being consumed by him? Because he is holy. But not only is he holy, he is holy, holy. But not only is he holy, holy, he is holy, holy, holy. Amen. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, you know, when Isaiah gets a glimpse of who God is as he sees him with the seraphim and the cherubim, and we hear them crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and is to come. And Isaiah then says in verse 5, woe is me, for I'm lost, or I'm undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He recognizes his own sinfulness as he sees the holiness of God. So David says, who can stand in the presence of such a holy God? He is our creator, and he is holy. So how could we dare to approach him? So who is acceptable to come before him? Who is able to enter the presence of holy God? Who is spiritually qualified to stand before this glorious king? Who, who can come into his presence? Whether that's right now as we seek to go to him in prayer for there's somebody, something on our hearts and we need to go to the Lord about or there's somebody that's weighing heavy because they're going through some difficulties. How can we even enter into the presence of holy God in prayer? Or even how can we enter into his presence when we breathe our last breath and, and we want to enter into heaven where he is? How can we do it? He is holy. He's the creator. He's holy God and he's absolutely pure. So who can come before him? That's what David's asking. But then he answers the question in the very next verse, verse four. The rightful requirement for access is seen here. Look at what he says in verse four. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So he tells us, okay, You're holy God, you're the creator, you're magnificent, you're mighty, you're sovereign. Who can come into your presence? He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitful. So what does that tell us? First off, it says, it tells us the person who can come into his presence must have clean hands. That means right actions. That's how we act, that's what we do. So those who can enter his presence must have actions, now hear me now, that are always right. Always right. 
Only those whose hands that are not stained with sin can enter into the presence of holy God. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a couple of them. Were your hands at any point supposed to help someone or do something, but you didn't? Were your hands ever used to do harm? Or thinking about our actions, having right actions, were you ever in your life disobedient to your parents? Ah. Well, if we're honest then, our actions are not always right. They've not always been right. And so our hands are not clean. We are stained with sin. So, who may enter into his presence? He who has clean hands. Already we're all knocked out. But then he goes further. He says, not only does he have clean hands, he, has a, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you're here to hear today and you say, well, pastor, I, I'm a good guy. I've always been a good guy. I've never done anything wrong. Okay, well, here's the next one here. Do you also have a pure heart? That means not only do you have right actions, but do you have the right attitude? So have your motives, have your thoughts, have your intentions, have your emotions always been pure? Do you always have the right motives? Are your intentions always seeking the best for others? Or when that person honks the horn at you on the road, are your thoughts always good? Are you one of those persons who says, oh, bless his heart. He must be late for an appointment today. I mean, come on. If we're honest, our attitudes are not always right. So our hearts are not pure. We are stained with sin. So if we haven't had right actions or right attitudes, what's, what else? It goes further. He says, not only do you have to have right actions and right attitudes, but then he says, and who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. That's your right affection. So to lift up your soul means to set your soul, set, to set your affection on something. So you're lifting up, you're setting your affection on something that's false. Are your affections for what is false or your affections for what is vain or what is worthless? Are you setting your affections on the things of this world or do you consistently, genuinely have affections for the Lord? And if we're honest, friends, there are times when our affections are often set on the worthless things of this world. And so we are stained with sin. Now, if you're here today and you say, oh, I got all this, Pastor. I mean, I do everything right all the time. And I always have the right attitude behind it. My heart's always pure about how I want to do things. And, and my affections are always on the Lord. I always love him with all my heart, mind, and soul. I'd say, well, the next one's got you then because it's, and it does not swear deceitfully, which talks about conversation, and you just lied. <laughs> so how about the words you use? Are they always truthful? Is your conversation always filled with the love of Jesus? What about what you email or you text or you post on social media? Does it always bring glory to the Lord? Beloved, listen, if we're honest, our conversations are not always true and good. And so our hearts are not pure. And the bottom line is 
we are stained with sin. So David here asked the question, who? Who can come into the presence of holy God? And he tells us who that is. Only the one who always has right actions and the right attitudes and the right affection and the right conversation. And so that being the case, none of us here meet that standard. Nobody. No one can enter. No one can come before holy God. No one can stand before him. No one. There is none righteous. No, not one. The book of Romans chapter 3 tells us that we're all guilty sinners who sin, that we are all stained with sin. You say, wait a minute, pastor. I'm struggling with something here. I thought here we were talking about God. How does this help me have a high view of him when you're telling me how bad I am? Well, Here's why. Because the Lord knows this about us. He knows our frame. He knows our fault. He knows our failure. He knows that we are dust. And he knows what we need in order to be in his presence. And he meets us in that need. You see, we need him. We need his presence. And apart from him, we are lost. None of us are perfect. None of us are pure. None of us are clean. Not a single person is worthy to enter into his presence. None. 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 But one. There was one. There was one who was perfect in all of his actions. Perfect in all of his attitudes. Perfect in his affection. And perfect with everything he said. And his name is Jesus. Amen. He always had the right actions. Always had the right attitude. Always had the right affection. Always had the right words to say. Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in 1 Peter 2, 22, it says that he committed no sin, neither was the deceit found in his mouth. So this Jesus had no sin, but he came and he died the penalty of a sinner on a cross. And he rose again and he did so not deserving to die on the cross, but he did so for a reason. So our stained hands and our stained heart and our stained affections and our stained conversations could be washed clean and could be purified now and forever. So we trust him by faith and we're made clean and we're made pure by Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, that verse we read right before we took the Lord's Supper tells us that for our sake, For our sake, who are not right, who are stained with sin, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He took the penalty we deserved as sinners. He took upon himself who was not a sinner and did not deserve the penalty. He took it upon himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We receive his righteousness. He took our sin upon himself and died in our place. You see, friends, we are saved and we are purified and we're made right with holy God through Jesus. 
And as we repent of our sin and trust him by faith, then we are transformed. And now because of the transformation that has taken place in our lives, we want to be like him. We want to spend time with him. We want to know him more and we desire to love him more because of what he has done, friends. Our hearts are transformed as well as our view of him. So let me ask you today, do you have a high view of God or a low view of God? You see, we see next what we have in and through Jesus in verses five and six. He says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So we receive through Jesus blessing and righteousness, salvation, and we will see the face of God. So let us worship Jesus for he is glorious. Amen. He is glorious. As a matter of fact, He's not just glorious. He is the king of glory. So what's your view of God? It needs to be a high view. And that brings us to our third point here is that he is the rightful recipient of adoration. Now, as David wrote these words, he likely had the Ark of the Covenant in mind as he he wrote these words, but by the spirit of God, By the inspiration of the Spirit, these words take us now to the gates of heaven. So let our minds go to the gates of heaven and see Jesus walking through these gates. So Jesus, who is fully God, but also fully man, has met the requirements of entering into the holy presence of God and he may come in. And so what we see here is that Jesus comes through the gates of heaven In triumph, as we read these next few verses, certainly these verses apply to when Jesus enters heaven as he has died on the cross, he has risen from the grave and he ascends after death and risen again. Can you imagine the scene in heaven as he ascended into heaven and then all of heaven cries out the words that we see in verses seven and eight? Just imagine it. Imagine the scene in glory. Jesus has come to the earth and he's lived his life and and he has died for our sin on the cross and he's risen bodily from the grave. And now he's ascending into heaven and all of the heaven cries out, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. So what he's saying is raise the tops and throw open the doors as wide as possible so that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Why, it's Jesus. That's who it is. In John 1, 14, we read the words that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his what? His glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So he is the Lord and he enters into the gates of glory and he comes and they're crying out. He is the strong and mighty, the mighty in battle. He has won the battle. You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. I don't remember Jesus fighting anybody. I mean, how how do you know what kind of battle? What battle has Jesus won? I say, what battle has he won? Let me tell you what he won. 
He has won the battle over sin and he's won the battle over hell and he's won the battle over the grave. He's won the battle against the enemy and he's won the battle over every temptation that was ever thrown at him. You see, he lived on this earth for 33 and a half years and he won every battle the enemy threw at him. The Lord was always triumphant. He never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. But the old enemy, you know, he used others to harass Jesus continually. The enemy used others to deny him and to eventually betray him and to spit upon him and to mock him and to crucify him. But what we see in Jesus is that Jesus never faltered. Right? Jesus never faltered. The enemy's attacks would fail. But Jesus would be victorious over and over and over again, always. And so now he comes to the gates of heaven, returning as the conquering hero that he is. He has defeated the enemy. He is triumphant over sin and he is victorious over the grave. And the cry goes out, who is this king of glory? And Jesus raises his nail scarred hand. And here's who he is, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And he enters in and he takes his seat at the right hand of God, for he is the rightful recipient of all adoration. Amen. He's the rightful recipient of our high view of him. But then we see something else. Okay, we got him in heaven and The cry has gone out, but then we see it happens again. There's a second time here. We see a second exclamation at entrance. And you know what? This could very well hint at the second time that Jesus enters into heaven. In verse 9 and 10, it says, again, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So here we see him this time, we see him enter with an army. He says he's the Lord of hosts. And so who are these hosts that are coming behind the great king? Who would those hosts be? Well, it could be angelic armies, maybe, but more likely, I believe it's what we find in the book of Revelation. Where it's the multitude from every tribe and nation and peoples and languages, all who've been redeemed from all the centuries. And I believe this very well could be the second coming of Christ and at his return into heaven, that he will bring all of his resurrected saints with him, entering into this glorious place on that glorious day with our glorious king. Amen. And if that is the case, then beloved, know this, that as a redeemed and rescued and ransomed believer who has been made righteous by him, then the Lord of hosts, that army, you and I are pictured right there with him. Amen. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. Who is this king of glory? It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Worship Jesus the rightful recipient of our highest view, the rightful recipient of all of our adoration, the rightful recipient of our worship. You say, all right, pastor, I'm with you on that and I worship him. I definitely worship Jesus. I mean, after all, I'm here today. 
I do this every Sunday. I worship Jesus. Matter of fact, you'd be so proud of me, Pastor. Every once in a while, I'll turn on the radio and I'll hear some Christian music. I say, oh, oh, that's Christmas music, Christian music. So, and I'll sing along with it. So I worship Jesus every once in a while in the car. Matter of fact, sometimes when I'm singing in the shower, I'll sing a, a hymn or something. Oh, yeah, I worship Jesus. I got this. That's great. I am so glad you do. But let me tell you something, friend. If you truly adore him, if you truly worship Jesus, if you truly have a high view of him, then it's going to affect how you live. Not just one Sunday a month, a week, not just every once in a while in the car, but it will affect how you live. So how about let your life be an act of worship? Amen. Let your life be an act of worship. How you love your spouse, let that be an act of worship to the Lord. How you nurture your children, let that be an act of worship to the Lord. How you do your job, no matter what that job is, how you let it be an act of worship to the Lord. How you interact with other people, let that be an act of worship. How you complete your degree, let that be an act of worship. Let all of these be acts of adoration and worship to Jesus. And let your view of God affect every single part of your life. Amen. Worship Jesus. He is the King of glory. He is the glorious one. So now there are two to-dos, okay? To apply what we've learned and heard today, number one is this. Evaluate your view of God. Ask yourself, do I live with a high view of God. And we might say we have a high view, but do we live that way? Do we have a high view of God or do we have a low view of God or do we have no view of God? If you've never viewed God in any sort of way, know this, that the Lord Jesus came for you because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. So trust him to be who he says he is. Turn to Jesus from sin and trust that he died on the cross for you and rose again bodily from the grave. Trusting him by faith. He calls you to himself. If you have a high view of God, it's going to lead you to high and holy living. If you have a low view of God, it leads to low living. But he is our creator. He is our owner. He is the one who gives us access into his presence And he is worthy of all of our adoration. Have a high view of God. Evaluate what your view is and adjust it. Here's the second to do. And I'm just going to tell you, you're not going to like it. I don't know that I really like it either, but I think it's important. All right. And here it is. Pray for a deep sense of your sinfulness. Pray for a deep sense of your sinfulness. And here's why. May we recognize that we're not as good as we think we are. That we need to understand that apart from Jesus, we would be lost, we'd be doomed, we'd be ruined forever without him. But also as we get a deeper sense of our sinfulness, may it evoke in us a real sense of gratitude and thankfulness for the grace of God 
that he knows that we deserve hell, that we deserved the cross. But Jesus took that for us. You see, friends, this is good for the soul to remember I once was lost, but also to remember just how lost I am without Jesus. Amen. It's been said, the more we recognize the depth of our sin, the more we'll see the height of God's love. And when we know that we are forgiven much, we will love him much. Amen. So pray for a deep sense of your sinfulness. As you're here today, I pray that you'll walk out those doors today with a higher view of God than you walked in. And may we be committed to live for him as an act of worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for this moment. We thank you, Lord, for our time together as we walk through this passage of scripture. I pray, Lord, that indeed we would live our lives with a high view of who you are. And that at this, at this juncture, in this time of this service, I pray, Lord, that from this point forward, we'd make commitment today that from this point forward, I want to live with a high view of God. Lord, I want to live committed to who you are. Help my whole life be an act of worship. I pray there'd be those who would make that commitment or recommitment today. I pray, Father, there'd be those that you're speaking to who would come and just pray for themselves or pray for a a friend or a neighbor or a family member who's struggling, who's lost sight of the view of God. I pray, Father, that you would be with us as we come to this moment of invitation. There's people here who've never trusted you by faith, that during the invitation, people would come and take a pastor by the hand and say, I need to know Jesus as my Savior. And we'd be glad to pray with them. Or maybe you're calling some folks into ministry to be on the mission field, to be a church planter, pastor, missionary. Lord, that they would surrender today as an act of worship. Lord, you are working in our hearts and in our lives. You're working in this church. We give you the glory, the honor, and praise. May we be open and obedient, receptive and tender to your spirit's movement. And Lord, as we come to this invitation, Lord, may you receive all the glory as we make these decisions of commitment for you and we live for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to sing together. You come as God's dealt with your heart.